At Maximus, we are focused on the future of federal government. We deliver mission-driven innovation at speed and scale, turning insights into impact. We are a top systems integrator and leading provider of transformative technology services, digitally enabled customer experiences, and clinical health services. We help agencies navigate obstacles and anticipate the unexpected by becoming more agile, empowered, effective, and ready for what lies ahead. We are Maximus, moving people forward. Learn more at Maximus.com federal. You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. I've always felt that one of the biggest mistakes that leaders can make is choosing a team that all think like they do. And and for me, you know, I, I I have some strengths. I certainly have weaknesses, and I'm the first to recognize those. And and I'm always looking for people with those complementary skills. People are going to challenge my thinking, challenge my assumptions. You know, give me new ideas. I've found that that's where I've kind of performed best. And I can look across other agencies and departments. And I see those pockets where, you know, we, I think we all know that leader who brings in, you know, the people that she knows and the people she's like. And and you realize that, you know, it doesn't add up. Right? You, you do the math and it just doesn't work. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. And today we are taking an inside look at one of the most secretive organizations on the planet, the Central Intelligence Agency. But before we do that, I want to invite you all to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen and make sure you get the latest episode sent right to you. And don't forget to leave a review if you liked our conversation. Today, I'm so grateful to be joined by one of the most respected leaders in government, the Deputy Director of the CIA for Digital Innovation, Ms. Jennifer Eubank. She's the agency's chief digital officer, overseeing the CIA's chief information officer and other key tech roles, and is responsible for accelerating the development and integration of digital and cyber capabilities across all of CIA's mission areas, including enterprise IT, cybersecurity, cyber operations and analysis, data strategy and AI, and much more. Recently, she was part of a panel at South by Southwest with the CIA director, where they called for more partnerships with the private sector, saying that the U.S. needs to supercharge its ability to keep up with foreign adversaries against threats like social media manipulation and ubiquitous surveillance. We're going to talk about ways she works to engage the private sector, but also we're going to take a journey across her long career in government and unpack some of the key lessons she has learned and advice she has for the next generation. Jennifer, I've been looking forward to this conversation so much and feel so honored to be able to welcome you to the show today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to join you today. Looking forward to our conversation. Me too. And so some of my listeners may remember that I just had Patrick Murphy on the show, the former congressman from Pennsylvania. And he's also the first post 9-11 veteran to serve in Congress. And when I kicked the episode off, I talked about a common thread that was very apparent throughout his personal life and his career, and, and that common thread is service. And as we kick this episode off, I, I really can't help but kind of speak to the obvious connected tissue that both you and he have, which is, which is service. Um, but as I've gotten to know you 
I learned that not only have you served um, for 35 years, um, it might be even more at this point, uh, in government, so did your husband. He served for 34 years, ultimately becoming uh, the deputy director of the National Clandestine Service for Counterintelligence, which is amazing. And I'm sure you guys could tell better dinner stories than, than I could between the two of you. But um, what I'm really curious to know is, was service something that was really instilled in you at a young age? And if so, kind of what was that influence from? Yeah, thank you, Brian. You know, it's interesting. That is a common thread. And it's it's no coincidence that we have very, very close ties to our military counterparts. And of course, as CIA, we have our roots in the Office of Strategic Services and World War II and the paramilitary tradition that we had at the time. So there is a common thread there. There's a common history, common values. And, and you're right. Um, we do, both my husband and I um, came through families, we grew up in families that were devoted to service in different kinds. On um, both of our families, we had servicemen left and right. And so my, my father is a veteran. My grandfather uh, served in the Navy, was twice wounded in World War II in the Pacific. Um, my father was in the Air Force, uh, but most directly for me, so I'm a child of the 60s, um, <laughs> you know, ask not what your country can do for you and all of that. Um, and my father was in the space industry. So although he wasn't directly in government, it was all about national security. And so I grew up with that fascination about industry and government and national security and well, you know, frankly, planets and stars and all of that kind of stuff. And, and so I, without realizing it, I kind of grew up and had a sense that service was going to be somewhere in my future. And, you know, lucky I became uh, that I was able to do so now for 36 years, almost 36. That's, that's very cool. I think it, it, goes to show that influences can be from anywhere, right? And it's, you never know when people are watching and you just kind of, I'm sure you and your um, your father and your, your family had conversations about it, but it's just, it's very interesting what you can pick up and throughout uh, kind of a childhood and and what really becomes important to you. And as you mentioned, it's it's going to be 36 years. What's, what's then kept you in public service? Because we've seen a lot of people where public service is really something that that is a draw for them and they want to serve, but you can ultimately serve in a myriad of capacities, right? Even in the commercial sector, but you've, you've stayed on the government side for this long. What's kept you there? Yeah, it's a real good question. Um, I get this a lot, particularly from my colleagues and my friends who are in private industry. And I think in America today, if you're in private industry, that means, you know, every few years you're going to, you're going to, gain some new skills, gain some new contacts, build your network, then build by going, to another organization, take that next big role and continue to build that way. Um, and, and it comes as a surprise to people that the CIA in particular is a place where you really can kind of reinvent yourself every few years and do something new and exciting and fresh and different all the time. So we we haven't talked about my my background in the organization, which is, is not the focus of our discussion today, but I will share with, with your audience that before coming into this you know, amazing uh, role that I have the honor of filling today, my career was all in operations. So that was collecting intelligence overseas on the plans and intentions of our adversaries. Like who's planning the next terrorist attack? You know, who's going to launch a coup? Who's going to sell, you know, nuclear weapons to some rogue nation? Like these are the things that I thought about every day. But what's interesting is that in that world, every two, three years, maybe four, it was something completely different. It was a new country, a new language, new issues, new topics, new cultures, new everything. 
And so there was this opportunity to continually learn new things and reinvent yourself and apply all those new skills as you moved along in some place new and exciting. So for me, that was that was great. And then this second piece goes back to kind of the, the discussion we just had a moment ago about service. And I know that it, it, it can sound a little bit corny uh, some days, but you know, I, I actually am very patriotic and I, I feel it's an honor to be able to do something each day to help make this country a little bit safer. And I, and I feel that I, I have that ability in this job, in all the roles that I've filled, I've been able to draw a direct line in some way between what I was doing that day and the security of our country and the prosperity of our country. So that, that's been very satisfying. Yeah, it's not corny at all, and I think, I think all of us are looking for. And I've been doing a lot of a lot of reading lately, and and the person I'm really really listening to the most right now is a guy named Jay Shetty, and he talks about purpose, right? And we're all looking for purpose, no matter what it is. And I think every day, if you can wake up and you can find that purpose, it's something that really can keep you disciplined on what you're trying to do to make sure that. As you're as you're moving forward on that purpose, you're giving everything you have that day, and then the next day, and then the day after that to keep moving forward. Yeah, I, w- I would just pile on a little bit there. So I had the opportunity to attend a course at Harvard Business School last year, and um, Professor Ranjay Gulati is also a published author on this this idea. He calls it deep purpose, and you know how that's such a driver in your life if you can find it. And you know, in retrospect, it was a bit of an accident maybe that I landed where I did, but but I found deep purpose. And so here I am, you know, decades later and very grateful for it. So I was going to hold this question for a little bit later, but you kind of started bringing up your background. Um, and before you joined the CIA, you talked about you traveling a lot. And so you were actually with the state department as a foreign service officer. And it's incredible. You even held the chief of station role four times in these tours abroad. I'm curious, what were some of the things that you learned while you held these roles and and what were some things you even learned about yourself uh, while you're in these positions? Yeah, thank you, Brian. Um, it's a good question, right? Um, I'm later in my career, so I, I have those moments of, of deep reflection, thinking about, you know, what have I learned? How have I grown? How have I changed? And and um, I'm glad you brought up my, my prior service in State Department as a foreign service officer because it was extraordinary. I have to say, you know, being a diplomat, representing America abroad, advocating for our interests and building partnerships with other governments, it, it's, it's wonderful. It, it felt like a very natural fit for my, my background, my educational background. I lived abroad. I spoke a foreign language. I was fascinated with the world, you know, just curious about everything. And um, and I had this sense of service. So being a foreign service officer was a, a natural fit and I, I really enjoyed it, but I didn't stay that long. I had a couple of tours overseas and then returned to Washington and ultimately joined the CIA. I had, you know, frankly met a number of CIA officers uh, while living overseas. And I thought, well, that sounds pretty exciting. <laughs> um, that looks pretty interesting. And, and so I took a leap of faith as anyone does when they join this organization. Nobody knows really what they're going to do. You have a sense, you have an idea. It's not the movies, let me tell you. Um, <laughs> although there are some common things, but um, you take a leap of faith. And, and for me, um, it has been personally and professionally you know, formative. So I will say this, and I should, a little clarification for those who don't follow such things, but um, so foreign service, did that, loved it. Chief of station is very much CIA roles. So those are after I joined CIA and um, kind of later in my career as I was able to assume more senior leadership positions. And the two the two organizations have 
you know, very different missions. They have very different cultures, um, but they are common threats too, right? So strengthening partnerships, really important. And the ability to communicate uh, effectively, convincingly, transparently, you know, that's really important, particularly when you're working across cultures. So those common elements, I would say, I would add into that, and this is, I don't know if this term is going to resonate with people, but say like cultural acumen, um, the ability to understand and to study and to adapt to new cultures. And obviously a facility with foreign languages, and I've had the pleasure of learning five at some level of fluency over the years. Um, adaptability, intellectual curiosity, um, empathy. It's something that that you know is often overlooked. That ability to kind of put yourself in someone else's mind uh, is really critical. Now, all of those things are in common. That's my golden retriever behind me. But you said he, you said you said he would <laughs> <Sorry>. show up. <laughs> so all those things are in common. I think between the State Department, or at least the Foreign Service part of the State Department and the CIA, all those things are in common. But when I look at the CIA, you also have to have you know a really high risk tolerance. Um, and um, that's where the roles really do differ. And you asked what I've learned about myself in this you know, long journey. And if I reflect on kind of various roles that I've filled over the years and where I felt that I was most successful, um, I think I, I, one of my strengths is, and I always hate to say these things because they sound immodest, but it, I think I have a strength and it is the ability to bring kind of teams and capabilities together to create something new and different. And, you know, ideally, you know, something groundbreaking or even kind of magical. And it's this penchant to envision a different future and figure out how to get there. And so whether it was the operations world or now this world of digital technologies, it's almost a systems thinking or systems engineering approach, you know, taking complex problems, knowing where you want to go, breaking it down into all the constituents parts, a little bit of Apollo 13 moment, you know, you look at all the tools and resources at your disposal and you figure out how you're going to make it all work. And, um, and for me, whether it was in the field or here, it's really bringing new technologies, new capabilities, applying them to our human and technical missions um, where it matters most. And that is over there, as we say, you know, the pointy end of the spear somewhere else in the world where we have officers doing dangerous work. I, I want to call something out. And first of all, I want to say it's absolutely not immodest. I think it's it's something that's really important. And that's what I want to call out is I think there's a good leadership lesson there in that you need to know your strengths, right? And you need to play to those strengths. And you also need to know your weaknesses or your blind spots, as I'll say, and understand the people that have those strengths and bring them in so they can kind of bolster what you bring to the table. So knowing what you're really good at, like you said, bringing things together, understanding those connective tissue pieces, I think that's absolutely a strength. And, and that, I think it's something that some people will struggle with. So I, I, I think it's important that. to call that out. Oh, thank you, Brian. I would add one thing because I've seen a lot of other leaders, you know, here and in other government agencies and big multinational companies. And, and I've always felt that one of the biggest mistakes that leaders can make is choosing a team that all think like they do. And, and for me, you know, I, I, I have some strengths. I certainly have weaknesses and I'm the first to recognize those. And, and I'm always looking for people with those complementary skills. People are going to challenge my thinking, challenge my assumptions, you know, give me new ideas. Um, I've found that that's where I've kind of performed best and I can look across other agencies and departments and I see those pockets where, you know, I think we all know that leader who brings in, you know, the people that she knows and the people she's like, and, and you realize that, you know, it doesn't add up. 
I, you, you do the math and it just doesn't work. So we're talking about kind of strengths and weaknesses as a leader. One of the things that we've discussed on the show, and it, it, it kind of popped in my head, is as you've gone through your career, I think we've all had that feeling of, I'm really good at this. And then you get to a point and you start to ask yourself, well, everybody else is really, really good at this too. Am I as good as I think I am? Am I going to Am I going to bring the team down? Am I going to be able to, are they going to be able to rely on me? And I, I, it's imposter syndrome, right? Is this something you've ever dealt with as, like I said, you've had a, a long career um, and, and, and some really high ranking roles. I can imagine things like that might've crept into your, into your brain a little bit, right? How have you dealt with it? Yeah, it's a fair question. And, and let me tell you, I work with some extraordinary people some of the most amazing intellects anywhere in government or anywhere in the United States. And um, it is it is amazing to be in, in the vicinity of, you know, so much brain power and passion and commitment. And, and so, sure, right? Everyone, everyone's going to feel that at some point. And there was an earlier point in my career when when I assumed, because I think it's all the things I've read and all the messaging and all of the, the stuff you see out there, I assumed that imposter syndrome was something that women and minorities experienced. And, and it came as a revelation to me that, no, in fact, everybody experiences it at some point or another. And, um, and I'm no exception. Uh, I'll share, there was one moment that really changed my perspective on all of this, though. And um, I'll, I'll share it. I have to keep the name of the person um, uh, confidential because it's, it just wouldn't be fair to her. But I, I had a, a meeting. There were a couple of us. I think we were maybe four total who had a private meeting with one of America's most senior women officials ever. Um, she was retired at the time, and she was reflecting on her career. And this is somebody who was, I mean, recognized all around the world. Very powerful, very influential. The top of her career, the top of you know, kind of her field, and she experienced imposter syndrome. She said each morning when she you know, woke up and she was brushing her teeth or brushing her hair, looking in the mirror, this little voice inside her was asking questions like, who do you think you are? Why do you think you can do this? You're not up to this, right? All of these questions undermining herself, you know, underestimating her strengths. And, um, and I was struck by that conversation because here was this woman, right? Extraordinary in every respect, respected worldwide by our allies and friends, feared by our adversaries, right? Um, and, and she experienced this. And so I was at this moment in my career where I was already in a senior role, but I was, I was moving into, let's say that, that thin top layer of senior executive roles. And I realized, man, if, if she experienced this, we all do. And I've always had one thing in mind since then. Every time that voice pops into my head and it pops into everyone's head, right? Um, you find yourself in a room of really extraordinary people and you're like, holy cow, right? It, and that voice comes in and I remind myself one thing every single time. And I say it to my friends and my colleagues, that voice, it lies. <laughs> it lies and we can't listen to it. And I'll, I'll pivot for a sec because I think this is, something really cool about the intelligence community in the United States. I think we've made amazing progress in creating this kind of, I don't know, inclusive environment and making progress is, you know, if we want to look more like the country we serve, we've made a lot of progress. And, and there was a, a moment not that long ago when it really was vividly represented. So uh, our former director 
of Central Intelligence Agency, Gina Haspel is, is the director who invited me to take this role and asked me to, and very grateful for that. Um, so a woman. And as you know, our director of national intelligence today is also a woman, uh, Avril Haynes. Um, but what had happened at CIA, organically, almost without anyone noticing, no fanfare and no intent, it was just the way things happened. Um, all five directorates that comprised the CIA at that moment were led by women. And then a lot of our senior executive roles, think C-suite type roles that were enterprise roles were filled by women. And we found ourselves one day looking around and we thought, wait a second, like the world is changing. And you know, it was an extraordinary moment. So we commemorated it with a, a photograph as our former director was um, finishing up her, her uh, assignment, her tour, her opportunity, her leadership as DCIA. And we all stood on the steps of our headquarters building and we had a photograph taken. And I keep that in my office. Um, not so much as a like, hey, look at all these women, but it was more along the lines of, you know, I look at that and I say, okay, great things happen, change happens. You know, we are making uh, real advances in creating a, an intelligence community that looks like the country we serve. So that was pretty awesome. And that's another one of those moments where um, I look at that and I remember, you know, that voice inside your head when it starts questioning you, you and you know, doubting you and the rest of it, just tell yourself it lies. Thank you for sharing those stories. That's, those are great. And I think when I, when I think of how I've dealt with imposter syndrome before and, and some of the folks that I've spoken about it, um, it takes me to um, an, another kind of piece of a book I remember listening to. There was this this period of time um, going from the 1970s to the 1980s where they realized they if they gave kids self-esteem, it would start to maybe make them um, a little bit, obviously they'll feel better about themselves, but give them more confidence in what they're trying to do. And so there was that big movement for a long period of time where in schools and and everywhere you were telling kids hey you can be anything you want to be or you can you can do whatever you want to do and what they came to find later on in life is that when it's not built on anything right and and you're just being told these things but you haven't learned yourself from kind of that the, the challenges that we all face and then overcoming those challenges successfully and you start to slowly build confidence until you get to a point where you look back and say, wow, you know what? I can't do anything and I don't need anybody to tell me I can do anything because I know it. It's, it's those types of situations that help us build that confidence. So whenever I'm in those situations, I kind of very much pause and think, no, I, I know I can do this. I've done, I've done things just as hard or harder before and I will find a way to kind of overcome these because I've found those challenges in the past. And I'm curious to know, um, not even technology specific, but throughout your career, what have been some of the challenges that you face that you feel like have given you that confidence as you've propelled forward? It's a great question. And I, and I love the way you, you've tied it to um, this other theme. And because it really is about kind of building that muscle over time, right? Being challenged, it's, it's almost like weightlifting, right? You're, you're, you're tearing the muscle fibers little by little as you're building new strength. And, and I think there's a lot of um, lot to learn from that. And so 
as you might imagine, okay, so my, my career before this job was all about operations field, collecting intelligence, trying to do things that like the average person would not <laughs> imagine doing and, and pretty hard and occasionally risky and uh, dangerous. And so the whole day, every day, 24 seven, 365, it was all about challenges and risk um, and the need to accomplish something difficult. So actually we have an informal motto um, in the CIA. It's, it's not the thing that you see all the, all over, but we, we have it inside and we say, we are America's first line of defense. We accomplish what others cannot accomplish and we go where others cannot go. And it's this, this moniker for us, this reminder that um, that's what we're there for to do the hard work. And, and so that whole world for me was challenge every day, all day. Now, most of that, Okay, put to the side is going to have to remain secret. And uh, over maybe cocktails and dinners with colleagues who have security clearances. But but I will say a few things that come to mind. Um, and and not to overplay the imposter syndrome piece and kind of being a woman. But I will say that um, you know I joined the world of espionage at a time when that was not common. Uh, it was pretty much a man's world. And in our training and our preparation back then, really did not make any account, any special account for women. And I'm not saying that everything's different. It's not, but hey, I've got slightly different skills, different perspective, different personality, different approach, different strengths that I might bring to our mission. And and so women were at that time um, underappreciated, underestimated. Um, and my young self back then, my very idealistic young self found it tremendously frustrating, right? It's so frustrated. Um, now the world has changed dramatically as I've, as I've shared with you already. But it took me a few years to understand, frankly, that all these people who might underestimate you, man, what a strength. That's a superpower for me. And when the job was you know, to collect the most insightful intelligence, to learn what adversaries are doing, and to remain unseen and undetected and unsuspected, well, frankly, being underestimated is a huge advantage. And so I once sat across the table from um, this this foreign agent, as we call him, somebody who's working secretly for us. Um, and he was doing some very dangerous work. I am not going to lie. And I was asking him to do very challenging things that put his life in our hands at times. And he paused at one moment in our meeting and he says, Jennifer, a woman, my people would never think of that. And I smiled, but in my mind, I'm thinking, exactly. That's why we are going to win. <laughs> and, and on another occasion, I worked as our senior representative, our chief of station, as you referred to earlier, chief of station and representative of the director of national intelligence in this country. Um, and it was a particular country that had a, a military junta running it, um, a traditional society where women did not move into senior levels of, of government or, or influence and where no woman had ever served in my role. And so, yeah, let me tell you, there were definitely challenging and difficult moments. But just as I had kind of learned to do over the years, I, I paused and, and as you just mentioned, Brian, right, I thought about my strengths, not about what made me different or what might be a weakness in that society, but about my, my strengths. And, you know, what competitive advantage did I have compared to, let's say, everyone who had been in my role previously? How was I going to make my mark and make a difference? And so, you know, I kind of cataloged all that and um, and I came up with my list. And in my case, I, I spoke this difficult language with with unusual fluency. Again, that sounds immodest, but I, I spoke it very well. I, I happened to be 
fairly good at, at foreign languages. And, and no predecessor had spoken the language at all at any fluency for a very long time. And I had lived in the country previously, so I, I felt very comfortable. I knew the people, I knew the culture, I knew the history, um, kind of core values, just knew how the place worked. And, um, and by doing that, I was able to kind of find those common threads, right? What core values um, of that society and that culture resonated with the US and vice versa? Those things that were important for me, you know, our freedom, our sovereignty, um, our independence, these things really resonated with, with that country. And, and then in that country, and I'm being, you know, um, purposefully uh, vague, just do not acknowledge where it was, but um, a fairly traditional society where everything happens on relationships, everything, like nothing happens unless you know the right people. And so um, that's what I did. You know, I, I met the right people, established relationships. I went to every wedding, every funeral, every, you, you name it, where who's who of that society got together. And it didn't take very long for those in the most senior roles in that government to look across a room and say, huh, she knows him. And all of a sudden, the doors opened for me and everything changed. Um, and then I would say, I would mention two very quickly two challenges. One, as I've, as I've referred to already, coming to this job, because I'm leading this large technology workforce, but coming from a very different background operations. And um, and I'm going to you know, reveal uh, the truth here. I, I have some technical acumen, but it's pretty dated. And the last um, coding class I ever took was four, involved Fortran punch cards in the early 1980s. So that's not going to help us too much today. Um, but um, I really did think about my strengths, as I, as I talked about before. And 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 how that complemented what's the what is already an extraordinary workforce with extraordinary leaders who have incredible technical expertise. But I brought something that I think was complementary. It was this intense personal connection to our mission, the pointy end of the spear, what happens over there, right? Um, that's important. And the actual use of all these new emerging technologies applied to operational problems to solve complex challenges. Um, I had a lot of experience building partnerships with U.S. industry. One of my previous roles was overseeing um, the CIA's partnerships with, with the U.S. private sector. And in the course of working overseas all those years, and something that um, I think the average person doesn't think about when they watch you know, a Jason Bourne movie or a James Bond movie, in fact, a lot of the job is about building partnerships with other governments. Um, we are allies and partners, and we, we pursue this complex mission together. And so that's something I brought to the to the table, and then the last thing, and and in the world of um, espionage and intelligence work, it's critically important. It's just a comfort with risk. You know, I I I lived risk every day of my life. Well, at least for these you know decades, and the ability to try new things, to challenge oneself, to take a risk, accept the occasional failure. That that was um, that was a strength. And I'd be remiss if I didn't highlight. I think the key challenge that we face today. Um, that's not me personally, but you know I'm I'm a part of it, and so leading again this large technology workforce, um, we're facing one of the most formidable challenges of our century, and that is this competition that is intensifying between the United States and the People's Republic of China, and um, it is, I think, a fact. I think one can say with with some certainty that. The Chinese view their competition with the West as sort of a zero-sum game. 
that their rise as a world power and their desire to become a world power return, I should say, to that world power status um, must necessarily come at the expense of America's decline. And, and that's a daunting challenge, right? And it's nowhere, I would say nowhere is it more daunting than across the digital landscape. This is where a lot of that competition is taking place. And so that's the huge challenge. That's like the big challenge, capital C challenge um, that, that I have and that my workforce has and the CIA has, the intelligence community, the US government, and frankly, all of America, because we've got to do this together. So um, that is what I focus on today. I'm very focused on winning this competition with the PRC. And anyone who knows me knows one thing, I like to win. I love that. I, I think, and, and that's the, well, I have conversations with, with government leaders on this show all the time. And that's the thing I, I think people forget is that at our core, we're all, I mean, if, if you're in the, the types of roles that you're in and other senior leaders are, you get there with a little bit of competitive spirit, right? We all want to win. And just because you're in government and you're not trying to beat another company doesn't mean you're not competitive and you want to be the best. And you, you literally, I mean, in your role, you have a scoreboard for all intents and purposes, um, and it's one that can get flashed across a newspaper if there's if there's challenges, which I, I can imagine is is very scary. But I, I, one of the things that I've seen, actually, as I've talked to some of these leaders, is something that you mentioned is that your technical acumen isn't maybe as strong as maybe people deep into IT, right? But that's something I've seen that's fairly common now is they bring leaders, especially in CIO roles, um, that have similar strengths that you talked about, right? Organizational strengths, understanding how all the pieces fit together strategically, and then align the people that can make those things happen, put those in, put those people in positions to succeed, which I think is is a great strategy. So, I mean, you talked about some of the things that you're focused on right now, but um, what's it what's it really like to be a digital leader in such a, a covert organization where you I mean you've you've said multiple times I'm being intentionally vague or I, I have to leave this person's name out it's it's very much uh, a covert environment so and digital is is wide open how do you manage the dichotomy of that as the leader at CIA yeah it, it's a good question. And, and here I am in this unusual position, right? So as you say, I work for um, an organization that conducts covert operations around the world to collect secret intelligence. And yet I'm in a very public facing role. And I come out of this background where, you know, the goal is to remain unseen, undetected. Um, and that's how you win. But you now I'm here on a podcast with you. <laughs> um, and so I'm blowing your cover. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, rats. There goes there goes my future as a as Jane Bond, right? But um, but really, I'm no longer in those roles um, conducting that kind of work overseas, and and um, it is important that we have these kind of connections with the American public. Um, I it, it's hard to to calibrate, but there's there's a happy medium in there somewhere. So we do this special exceptional occasionally dangerous work on behalf of the American public. Now there's a whole, there's whole structure out there, um, congressional oversight, our elected representatives have deep insight into everything we do. We are held accountable as we should be, right? But that's done in secrecy. But it, I still feel that we should be able to give a little flavor of what we're trying to accomplish um, publicly um, to the American people. 
who could, who should and um, and do hold us accountable. But in terms of of leadership, it's interesting. I've um, I have to say I, I I've, there's this whole tendency in digital tech, right? Um, if you just throw the word digital in front of something, it becomes like cool. And so <laughs> I found that a little bit awkward moving into this role. And so I use this term digital leader um, cautiously, but I do think it's it's a real thing. And I think for somebody who's in a, a digital leadership role, you're going to need all those traditional strengths, obviously, that you do as um, as a leader, an effective leader, I should say, anywhere. Um, for us in CIA, we always talk about integrity being the first. If you don't have integrity, you've got nothing else. So it's really integrity. I would add in there a strategic vision, ability to translate kind of strategy into action, um, you know, lots of other, you know, good communication skills. So there's a whole, there's a whole basket of things that you want traditional leaders to be able to do. Um, but on the in digital landscape, at least to operate effectively, I do think that it requires additional skills, kind of some new approaches and a slightly different mindset. And, and all those things can be at odds sometimes with traditional leadership in a large government organization. And, you know, i Anyone who knows me knows I'm pathologically candid, and I will admit that I find myself in very, you know, polite conflict with the system, right? The system designed for a different time, different technologies, different era, um, and not optimized for success in this really fast-moving digital environment. Luckily, the CIA is agile, fast-moving, adaptable, but we also have to operate within a framework that's, you know, has broader government uh, restraints. So if I think about digital leaders in this environment, um, kind of hackneyed expressions, but they're real. So you need to be able to break barriers. I mean, from that, by that, um, don't take the status quo as the answer. And uh, any officer who's come to brief me on something and they used this dreaded phrase has heard, um, you know, gotten the response they did not want. So if I ask a question, their response is, we can't do that because that's not how we do things. We're done, right? That that's the whole point. That's the whole point of the I in DDI, the Directorate of Digital Innovation, is to do things differently. So we have to be have that mindset that we're willing to, you know, break barriers, try new things. We're willing to take risks, and we really have to. And whether you're a startup, you know, in digital tech, or you're leading this large government organization dedicated to leveraging digital technology, you have to be comfortable with risk. And with risk comes the ability to accept, embrace, learn from failure. And um, that's not how government agencies usually operate. And so, you know, that's a cultural change and a cultural value that we try to instill in our officers and, and live up to it. If we fail, we accept it. We learn from it. We share those lessons. We move on because we're one step closer to fill in the blank successful you know, capability we want to develop. Um, we need to be able to to innovate, have that mindset of innovation. Hey, I'm a very practical person. For me, innovation is something new and useful. And so sometimes that small eye, you know, a tweak to a system, sometimes that's big eye, complete transformation. And we're working that whole spectrum there. And the last one I would say is, is integration. And this really gets to, and it's a bit of a buzzword sometimes, but it's really about comp solving complex problems and bringing together all these various pieces in new ways to unlock success. And every 
major you know, multinational company I've spoken to or government agency and department who is, let's say, pretty advanced along this digital transformation journey, they're all going to face this same moment when they realize that they cannot create anything new in the traditional vertical silos. They cannot, in the business lines, right? They cannot do it. You have to bring together um, integration across the horizontals, like all the various, in our organization, we have these components. We have you know, IT and cybersecurity and data and cyber, and et cetera, et cetera. All, everything new, useful, powerful, um, and innovative happens by horizontal integration. And so being able to, to focus on that is, is really important if we're gonna solve um, big challenges. And then the last one, and this might come as a surprise to those who really aren't that familiar with the U.S. intelligence community, and I wouldn't expect anyone to be that familiar if they don't work here, but um, it's really how important the U.S. private sector is for our success. And so, you know, this whole digital technology landscape, no surprise to you, Brian, because you follow these issues so so closely, and your many of your guests do too, right? It is the private sector that's moving most rapidly. They are they are developing the latest, greatest things. And if I contrast that to when I joined government, um, you know, it used to be that government was the engine of innovation. You know, we put a man on the moon and, you know, satellites in, in orbit and, you know, all these amazing accomplishments. But in digital tech these days, it's really that fast moving startup um, that's making those advances. And so we have to be a fast follower. And that means that we need to have relationships, good relationships, strong strategic partnerships with U.S. industry. And um, and those are that's a little different, I think, than, say, 10, 15, 20 years ago. So a lot of common uh, characteristics, I think, for leaders anywhere where they might be. But in this space, it requires something a little different. So much to unpack there. And, and thank you for sharing that, because the, the strategy there is so important. And first of all, something I do want to call out, um, you're absolutely right. I think culture plays a really big part in it. And it sounds like, I mean, first of all, you're, you're thinking, I mean, my job is to go in and I sort of kind of have to break things a little bit to kind of move them forward and, and breaking, breaking a few eggs as you're going is, is okay. And, and I like that you said kind of accepted risk. It doesn't mean you have to, but it, it means it could, and we move forward. I mean, I can imagine that's a difficult culture to to start to create and build an environment a government environment to say a government environment um but the other question i had for you i'm, I'm really interested to know this especially since you did hold that role where you were managing um or overseeing the partnership side of things for the cia you said and, and i agree there's a lot of great innovations happening from some of these emerging tech companies but there's also a funny dichotomy there where these emerging tech companies don't necessarily have the understanding of how government works, or they don't maybe have things like as basic as perhaps FedRAMP, which I would imagine is is paramount now, but just when you're ramping things up, getting into a situation where you can afford that, even though it is cutting edge technology that can be leveraged um, within within your organization, you get all these innovations, but you, you can't really see them realized. How have you, what's your view on that? And how have you managed that, that challenge um, in your role? Well, you know, it, it's a good question. It gets to the heart of, you know, kind of being this secret intelligence organization and dealing with and wanting to work effectively with industry. And um, if we are going to win, whatever win looks like, um, we have to do it as a team and we have to be able to work together as a team. So, 
it, it, it is, it can be a bit of a, a challenge. And, um, and so we think a lot about, we think deeply about, um, we talk about uh, within our organization about how we're going to strengthen those partnerships with, with industry. And um, because we do recognize that they're really critical to everything we're going to do for the future, every kind of success we're going to have. And so partly we talk about innovation a lot in terms of technology, right? You mentioned the word culture. Absolutely. I also think we have to innovate some of the processes, the systems that underpin our work. And this is when I say I was in, I'm occasionally in, in polite conflict with the system. Um, it's because I don't think we're optimized for the future. And I do think we have more work to do to become U.S. government at large. I'm not CIA. I think we're probably the most agile part of the U.S. government, um, maybe without comparison, in my opinion. But um, we do need to be able to move more rapidly and more agile fashion. But we've made some small changes that have actually had some really powerful effect, all within you know, the, the framework of traditional acquisitions, law, and policy in the U.S. government. So very small one. This, this may go unnoticed by those who aren't specifically interested in working with the CIA. But um, we have a, a, these what we call broad area announcements, broad agency announcements, where we announced to industry the kinds of problems they're trying to solve. So we we created uh, an unclassified version that's public. Um, we call it it's digital hammer. You know, in government, in the intel community, everything's got some two word name. You know, uh, a code or a, a moniker of some kind. We call it digital hammer. I don't know why, but we do. Um, but we call it digital hammer broad agency announcement, and um, it is a, a venue. We post it online. It's public. It's for any company to see where we describe the kinds of problems that we're trying to solve, and we invite companies to submit brief white papers um, to share how might their technology help us do that. Well, the effect of that has been pretty amazing. Um, and it's for all the technologies you might think in the digital realm. So we're thinking about artificial intelligence and machine learning, high performance cloud and hybrid uh, computing, advanced analytics and data, cyber, all aspects of cyber, um, you name it, and all the associated stuff. Um, but what it's done is, is a few things. First, it gives us tremendous new insights into who is out there in the, in in the industry in this space. As I mentioned earlier, um, a lot of the most dynamic and interesting innovation is coming out of startups. And so if you're not one of the big government contractors, you know, in one of those big marquee buildings circling Washington, D.C., how do you even know what, you know, how, what might be needed by the intelligence community? How do you even know where the front door is? How do you even know how to make that contact and what we might be seeking to accomplish? And so this um, digital hammer, BAA, as we call it, um, has been really powerful. So we've brought in countless, and I, I won't name the number, but a very large number of companies are now kind of in the orbit. We, we never would have known them before. We never would have known the amazing cool work that they're doing and how we might be able to leverage that. So there's been that piece. And then for those who are, you know, kind of deeply steeped in the esoteric aspects of federal acquisitions <laughs> law and policy, um, it has allowed us to dramatically collapse the timelines between identifying what we need and actually getting it. Um, and we've used this very creative um, and um, effective methodology through the BAA. So if anyone out there is you know, in that space, they're interested, they're probably familiar with 
broad area of broad agency announcements, but they're hosted on something called the ARC, which is the Acquisitions Research Center. Um, they can find it online and then you can click through and you can find, hey, what problems are we trying to solve? And we invite industry to, to look at that. Um, another way that we've been tackling this in the Director of Digital Innovation or you know, on CIA's behalf as a whole is with a team we call Digital Futures. And um, their role is very much that horizon scanning, um, you know, external outreach, plus innovation, like practical innovation, bringing companies, bringing our partners from across the agency together, often in an unclassified laboratory environment where they can kind of try new things, run quick pilots and see what might work. And if it, if it works, great. If it doesn't, move on to the next thing. And so that's been for us really powerful. And I don't usually like give out email addresses, you know, in podcasts, but if it, I think you have um, an audience that's very interested in the federal space. And so um, for those who might be interested in exploring how they can partner with CIA in this area, if they are, you know, representing a company with new digital technology capabilities, um, there is an email address I would, I would give them. And that is DF for digital futures hyphen engage at ucia.gov. Um, Lastly, and this is this is pretty new, um, on the CIA.gov website, we have a new splash page for technology generally. So it's just CIA.gov slash tech. And that's an entry point for um, kind of lots and lots of teams across our large organization who are working on technology. And, and again, that we're trying to give people uh, a front door, like help people understand how they can contact us because otherwise, like, how would you even know? Um, and last thing, this is this has turned out to be kind of amusing, but um, the the DMs in my LinkedIn profile <laughs> is where a lot of companies come into contact with the CIA, and I'm I'm delighted for that. And you know, I I, I do light social media on LinkedIn, and um, and Brian, actually, you may not know this. Um, you and I met by accident, in fact, and I, I consider it a very happy accident at that. Uh, when I when I signed up for LinkedIn, wasn't long thereafter. I was looking for you know a few key colleagues um, to see if they were on there, and you share a last name with with a colleague of mine. And I wasn't wearing my reading glasses, and I was searching for you know Chittister. So up pops. Um, I couldn't quite see the photo. I thought well, that's probably him. Click connect, and we connected. And I'm really glad we did, but 100% by accident. Um, but here I am, and happy to be here. I, I have such a common last name too. I'm surprised. <laughs> that's the point yeah yeah um so but, uh, before i give you a chance to to leave any final thoughts one of the one of the things that we've discussed and, and you've brought up a fair amount is is the world is is changing right um and when i bring uh female leaders on i think it's really important um to have a very similar conversation as, as to what we've been having but i'm curious to know what what type of advice or guidance jennifer do you have for some of the the young leaders in the space um, that are perhaps new to the tech world, new to the government industry, um, or even just new to their careers. What's some advice that is really, um, or some things that have helped you or advice you'd want to leave with them? Oh, I appreciate that. Um, it's always risky, right? Um, people have been around for a long time as, as I have, um, always have advice. Sometimes it helps, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it reflects a world that's no long changed. Um, and so I'll, I'll leave the advice about, you know, technical skills and capabilities um, to those who are maybe closer to, the, to your audience. And, and, and I would just mention two themes, um, things that came as revelations to me. And 
and since kind of having those moments of, of kind of insight, it really did change my career. And, and the first is authenticity. Um, and you know, there's been a fair amount of kind of management speak literature about this um, in recent years, but it wasn't always the case. And and here I was, I grew up in an organization where I, I was not the norm. Um, I wasn't the normal kind of stereotypical um, operations officer in the CIA. There was a very specific model for what that looked like. And that, that wasn't me. I mean, looked like meaning physically, but also just kind of personality, um, uh, the rest of it. So um, that stereotype of a successful leader, you know, I, I tried it on for a number of years thinking, okay, well, I'll just try to be that person. And, and what I didn't realize is that you have to be authentic to build any kind of real trust and you have to have trust to lead an effective team. And, and so I was completely undermining myself in the process of trying to be something I wasn't a person who I wasn't. And, and that took a bit of time to realize that, wait, wait a second here. Um, you know, I can do this and I can do this in my own way and realizing that I could approach pretty complex job with a very different outward appearance and mannerisms and, um, uh, communication style. And, you know, you fill in the blank just differently. That was a revelation to me. And since I had that kind of epiphany and kind of exaggerating a little bit, um, frankly, things become much easier, right? If you're comfortable with yourself, you're comfortable that, okay, I'm going to give all I've got and what I've got is enough. Um, and I'm going to be my authentic self, my, okay, my best authentic self, you know, not my worst authentic self, but my best authentic self. I think once you realize that, um, it gives you confidence to chart your own path. And I would, I would encourage any, any kind of young person starting off in a career, um, to just give that some thought and think about, you know, what is your authentic self? What are your strengths? Stop worrying about kind of rectifying weaknesses or fixing some other flaw or trying to fit somebody else's model. You know, be the best version that you can be. And a lot of things become easier. And then the, the second one I'll mention, and, and we, we touched on this at the beginning of our conversation today, Brian, is reinvention, right? So that doesn't mean like change who you are, but like, constantly learning new things. I mean, CIA is a learning organization. And I think that comes as a surprise to people too. Like constantly learning new things, new languages, new issues, new substance, new, you name it, new technology in my case. And so that ability to continually kind of adapt and learn, um, kind of reinvent yourself is really powerful. So I spent decades, you know, in the foreign service and then um, as an operations officer, and now I get to lead this amazing, extraordinary, really impressive digital workforce. Um, and of course, I've had to learn along the way. And I've, I've had to study and do my homework and um, adapt. And in many ways, I'd say kind of innovate myself. Um, and so I would just challenge people earlier in their careers um, to, to think about that. We all have skills, but those skills need to change over time um, to adapt to how the world is changing around us. That's really good advice. And I think especially that second point, it's it's incredibly difficult, but I think it's so important. And I almost think we have a responsibility to ourselves to innovate ourselves as we go to get the most out of our potential. So I think that's, that's a, a great piece of advice to leave. And um, as we wrap up, I want to give you a chance to leave any final thoughts you have for our listeners before you go. 
No, this this has just been a real pleasure for me, Brian. Um, I tell you, it's it's a joy to spend time talking to you about something I, I'm clearly passionate about that I love, um, that I've committed my my life to. Um, but I, I would be remiss if I did not take advantage and do a shameless plug um, for anyone out there who might be thinking, "Wow, you know, the exciting world of espionage might be for me." Um, I would I would encourage them to look at the CIA.gov website. Um, we actually have some really great information that goes into some detail about all the various you know, roles and skills that we're looking for um, and how one might explore um, uh, applications. That is my dog shaking in the background if you hear the noise, apologies. Um, but it's, it's a great resource and the CIA employs all kinds of people, right? We, we have calligraphers and satellite engineers and everything in between. And so, you know, if you think you might be interested, I would challenge you or encourage you to go take a look at the CIA.gov website. It's been a fantastic ride for me. I've loved every minute of it. When eventually someday I do retire, um, I'll be very sorry to see it go, but um, very excited by the new leaders I see coming through the organization and the talent they bring. So pretty confident. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for your time today. I'll tell you, this is going to go down as one of my my favorite conversations that I've had. Um, But more importantly, thank you. Thank you for the service that you've given to the country um, and and to your your husband as well. Um, I know there's a lot of sacrifices that that I know you and he must have made across that that period of time. Um, So so thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. There were sacrifices. I wouldn't have had it any other way. Love it. This has, been, this has been the Government Huddle podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to governmenthuddle.com, wherever you access your podcast. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Chittistray B. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.